Well, as the bulletin indicates, we'll be reading from Ephesians chapter 4, and this can be uh, found on page 978. We'll pick up on verse uh, 17. Uh, Before I read, I do have a a note on translation. Um, And as you look to your Bibles, ordinarily we read from the Pew Bible, the English Standard Version. Uh, But last week we noted a slight difference. That was a comma. That was a very momentous comma uh, that was missing in Ephesians 4.12. And we pointed out that that translation involves interpretation. Every translation is an interpretation, even a commentary on a text. And this week, I'm going to go a little bit step further. I've done this before. But I'll be reading from a different translation. um, Actually, a translation produced by my New Testament professor, Steve Baugh. Um, He liked to call it the BSV, the Baugh Standard Version in class. But uh, he has published this in his commentary, a really excellent Ephesians uh, commentary that didn't exist 10 years ago uh, when I preached uh, through Ephesians uh, previously. Now, this translation draws out the importance really throughout the whole epistle, of the radical transformation worked in the believer by Christ at conversion. What Paul calls elsewhere, and even here, the new creation. And this is in uh, verse 22 and verse 24. So I will be taking, and, and uh, so you can follow along in the ESV, but there will be slight differences. I'll be taking the verbs in verse 22 and 24, not as commands or imperatives that we uh, put off our old man and put on the new man, But as statements of fact, you have shed your old man. You have donned or put on your new man. So, thus far, the reading of God's holy word from uh, chapter 4, verse 17 through verse 24. So I declare and testify in the Lord as follows. That you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. For they are darkened in their mindset. Alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. Who in their callousness have given themselves over to licentiousness, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. Whereas in contrast you did not learn the Messiah in that way. For surely you have heard about him and were taught in him since truth is in Jesus. That you have shed your old man In regard to your former manner of life, which is perishing due to its deceitful desires, and that you are undergoing renewal in the spirit of your minds, and that you have donned the new man who was created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and devotion. Thus far, the reading of God's holy word. Join me now in our prayer for illumination. Our Father, we have heard wonderful things out of thy word. We praise you for revealing Christ as the fulfillment of the Old Testament and ask you to give us your spirit so that we may understand the fullness of your truth. Amen. Please be seated. Well, one of the more remarkable transformations found in nature is the transformation of a caterpillar into a butterfly. I think most uh, school children have done some experiments or some studies of, of this remarkable profi- process of metamorphosis. And the process, of course, includes the destruction of the old and the reintegration, the creation of the new. And the caterpillar's cells in the cocoon are literally liquefied into a soup of proteins, out of which 
uh, a new creature is constructed. A butterfly emerges, usually in a span of a week or two, 9 to 14 days. And as Paul continues to call us to live a new life in Christ, he grounds his exhortation in an even more remarkable work of new creation. The death and shedding of the old and the rebirth or new birth of a new man. And this he considers to be not ancillary, but a central truth of Christianity. The core gospel principle, which he here calls learning Christ, is learning uh, the truth that is in Jesus, the truth that is in his cross. When Paul preaches Christ crucified, he calls the believer to look at the cross and see in Jesus' death his own death. And when he proclaims the resurrection and ascension, as he did here in verse 8 in last week's text and following, he is showing us the new man, the new humanity of which we are now a part. This central truth of Christ, this new creation, is why Paul structures his teaching and preaching in this indicative, imperative fashion that we have been looking at the last few weeks. He describes who we are, what this new reality is, what the facts of the new life is in us. And then he proceeds to talk about the transformation in our way of living that occurs as a result. Think of it this way. You're not going to get very far if you tell a caterpillar to fly. But if you see a butterfly emerging from a cocoon, slowly unfolding and drying and extending its wings for the very first time, you just might have to remind him that he can no longer crawl around eating leaves. That it's time to fly. Butterfly, you now have wings. And these wings can carry you a long, long way. So I want to begin with the first point in my outline. And it's a very brief point in uh, verse 17. And that is the command to turn away from the old life. Paul opens this section with a particularly solemn command. And he uses this language of, I declare and testify in the Lord. It's like he's almost speaking an oath. He's speaking on behalf of Christ because Christ has given him this message. He says, you must no longer walk. As the Gentiles do. Remember Paul opened chapter 4 by calling the church to walk in a manner worthy of calling to which you've been called. And he characterized the new walk very briefly in outline as, as humility. A humble walking in love. An eagerness to maintain the unity of the church. And he went on to speak of those divine gifts, those graces which Christ showers down from above as he ascends. That we need, that are required by us to maintain this unity. A unique and diverse gifting to all the members of the body, the unique different parts of the body that are nevertheless united because they serve one spirit. And this will be really the topic until the end of the letter. How do we live out our various roles and portray uh, this beautiful new creation? And having grounded the new life of love and grace and unity of the body, this new creation reality, the church is a part of this new creation reality, he returns now to the image of walking, beginning first with what you must no longer do. No longer walk as the Gentiles do. And he immediately launches into a description of Gentile walking, what it looks like, how and why uh, they do it. But first I just want to pause and reflect on the command. The command is simple. You must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. 
This is the standard description of the Christian life. Stop living like a Gentile. I'll put those things to death. Don't feed that lifestyle anymore. Encourage the new. In Colossians, uh, the sister letter, Paul tells believers that they have been raised with Christ, that they are seated in the heavenlies with Christ. He tells them to set their minds on things above, for their life is hidden with Christ in God. And then he says, put to death what is earthly in you. It's the same pattern of instruction. And this is the fundamental pattern of our lives of gratitude as believers taught in the New Testament, taught in our Heidelberg uh, Catechism. We're a few weeks away uh, from Lord's Day 33, but in the back of your Psalter hymnal, uh, when the Catechism starts to talk about the life of sanctification, it puts it in terms of putting to death and coming to new life. The old-fashioned words are mortification, to mortify, and to vivify, vivification. And so in the back of your Psalter hymnal on page 888, what is involved in genuine repentance or conversion? Two things, the dying away of the old self and the rising to life of the new. So there are these two opposite realities taking place. What is the dying away of the old self? To be genuinely sorry for sin and more and more to hate and run away from it. Brothers and sisters, we might turn to Christ, we might know we're sinners, we might know our need. And yet so much of the Christian life is learning and growing And acknowledging the sinfulness of our sin. How wicked it is. How offensive it is to God's holiness. To his goodness. How full of lies it is. How it blinds us. It takes a lifetime of walking with Christ. On your deathbed, you'll probably say, Oh, (laughs) now it makes sense how sinful I was. What is the rising to life of the new self? The catechism asks in question 90. Wholehearted joy in God through Christ and a love and delight to live according to the will of God by doing every kind of good work. The new creation, the new man in us rejoices in God's law of love because this is what we are made for. It understands the, the lie of Satan and sin and the truth of God in Christ. The gospel truly changes everything we do. Everything. Your life has to change. You aren't saved by your good works, but you are saved for your good works. And that is exactly what the apostle said in chapter 2. By grace you have been saved through faith. This not your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship. You see that? He created us new, new birth, Created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. There's that walking theme. And back in chapter 2, he introduced this. And now in chapter 4, 5, and 6, he's telling us how to walk. It's a very practical sermon. It's a very practical summary of the Christian faith. This is true in every area of your life, as the rest of this letter will make clear. Your home. Your marriage, if you're married, your, your family, even if you're not married, your parents and siblings, your workplace. But it is particularly true, and this is a unique emphasis that we often miss in our day, in the church. It is particularly true in the kingdom of God here that's breaking into this world in a radically different way. I mentioned in my sermons earlier on chapter 2 and 3 that this idea of chapter 2 
that you were dead in your sins and trespasses and you came to new life. It is sort of guilt, grace, and gratitude in the case of an individual. And then it's followed by the same three points in the case of the corporate reality of the church. This corporate reality is very much in the front of Paul's mind because without the corporate reality of being a part of the kingdom of God, this new heavenly society, the new creation has no hope of getting through to the individual. The individual is transformed through where are these gifts showered? Apostles, prophets, teachers, pastors. It's the ministry of the word that empowers the transformation of the individual. In our study last spring... Our midweek study through David Van Drunen's book, Living in God's Two Kingdoms. We saw how Van Drunen helpfully summarized the radically transformed society that takes root in the church. And, and he used three different uh, vectors. He said, in the church you find forgiveness that transcends justice. Forgiveness that transcends justice. There are no criminal records in the church. You confess and repent and the slate is clean. It's not like the world. Generosity that transcends scarcity. No one has a need in this church, a physical need that won't be met. You might have plenty of wants that won't be met, but no needs. Are you hungry? Are you without shelter? We'll do what we can to help. And you know what? All we have to do is pick up the phone if we can't help and call sister churches. And that's what we're committed to. Josh and Conrad are deacons. Kyle Lee's a deacon. That's the business that they are about in the life of this church. Do you need someone at your bedside in the hospital? A lot of people do. We'll be there. Do you need someone at your grave to pray the Lord's blessings and the resurrection hope? We'll be there. Every need. It's, there's no scarcity because our Heavenly Father owns the cattle on a thousand hills. He doesn't lack for anything. If we lack, it's because he's teaching us something. And finally, in the church, there is evangelism that spurns violence. This is why church and politics don't meet, don't, don't mesh so well. You see, in politics, you try to get 51% of a plebiscite so you can tell other people how to live their lives. The gospel calls people to faith. And the spirit works in them. God writes that law in their hearts. We don't use the sword to compel people to faith. We invite them to Christ. We are ambassadors pleading with them to be reconciled with God where their life can truly be found. It's a different society, a different kingdom in which we live, brothers and sisters. When you enter the church, as baby Esther did this morning in a formal way, you are baptized into her. You leave behind your former ways. You become part of the kingdom of God on earth. You're baptized into Christ's death. Paul says in Romans 6 that we're united with him. We've died to sin and therefore we've been brought to new life. Praise God. It's true of all of the baptized members, believers in Jesus Christ here in this room right now. Praise God. And that brings us to this second point. Paul then takes a little bit of a detour. He's no longer instructing us how to live. He's instructing us how not to live. And he's not even really saying that. He's not saying Gentiles do X and Y and Z. He's explaining why Gentiles live the way they do. He wants to describe what causes and what is wrong with that old life in sin. He wants to see, wants us to see its sinfulness. Now remember, before we start here and look at his teaching briefly, Paul's talking to a congregation of mostly adult Gentile converts. In chapter 2, verse 11, he says, At one time, you were all Gentiles in the flesh. 
So clearly he's not talking about the fact that they're not Gentiles anymore. He's using the word Gentile in a spiritual sense, worldly, right? Um, The gospel comes to all races, all ethnicities. They remembered the life they had lived before they heard of Christ. And literally, when they heard of Christ, no one in Ephesus had ever heard of Christ before. Paul says in chapter 2, they once walked in their trespasses and sin. There's that walking metaphor. It's a good metaphor. Following the course of this world, a path. Following who? Satan, the prince of the power of the air, the spirit now at work in the sons of disobedience. That's the way of the world. That's the Gentiles. So his congregation knows that way. Maybe some of you know that way. It's a certain blessing you might resent or or regret the fact that, that you walked away from the faith or that you were not a believer for a season in your life. But God can use that knowledge in you to appreciate the sweetness of his gospel even more. But Paul is also speaking from personal experience. He held people's robes while the first martyr was stoned. He attacked the church. He hunted them down. He led a posse. It's like an old western movie. He went out in a posse to hunt down Christians. And Jesus knocked him off the horse. He said, Paul, Paul, why are you persecuting me? It's not about the blood in your veins. It's not about your DNA. It's about the way of the world, which we can all fall into. And he begins his description with the language of Ecclesiastes in the futility of their minds. This is the same word that we find in Ecclesiastes 1 of 2. Vanity of vanity, all is vanities. In the Greek, it's translated with this word, futility of futilities. All is futilities. Life under the sun is futile. Read Ecclesiastes this week. It's a wonderful read. It's a picture of the vanity, the emptiness of life under the sun, apart from our Creator, apart from God. It's dead-ended. It leads to nothing. It's hopeless. Paul says in Romans 8 that creation through sin was subjected to futility. Same word. And it's not merely that the mind of fallen man is full of empty things, although if you look at the internet, you probably think it's true, right? Frivolities, there's that sense of vanity. I mean, and I confess, I'm the consumer of as much of this stuff as anyone else. But when we try to lift our mind, when the fallen man tries to lift his mind to philosophy, to wisdom, even to theology, apart from God and his word, what does Paul say? The Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, that they are futile. It's even worse. Our wisest musings miss the point. So this futility is caused by a darkness in their understanding or thinking. Not just that they have dark thoughts, but their whole whole rationality is darkened. It doesn't work right. John Calvin has this great metaphor of fallen humanity. He says, you know, philosophers, you you get this picture of like Plato and Aristotle wandering into a building, a structure. But it's like one of those buildings in Kiev, in Ukraine, that's been bombed out, right? And it's all falling to pieces. And it's like someone walking in saying like, I wonder what the architect was thinking when they made that arch broken like that. Like trying to create some sort of meaning or rationale for something that's been bombed out and destroyed by our sin and rebellion. And he says, how foolish are they? And this is the the fruit, the, the, the seed of all the errors of philosophy. They look at fallen humanity and think we were meant to be like this. But we weren't. John tells us that the light shone in the darkness... And the world in its darkness did not know him. The light is the word, Jesus. 
In chapter 5, in the next chapter, Paul here will say, For at one time you were darkness. Same theme here. You were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of the light. You see what he's saying? He's doing the same thing. You were darkened, but you became enlightened. The darkness keeps us from God and from the life that is in him. Alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them. Last week I mentioned Jesus' high priestly prayer. In John 17, Jesus says, This is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Now this isn't some like rationalist, like philosophical approach to humanity. This doesn't reduce us to brains on sticks, as some people have criticized this. When he's talking about knowing God, he's using know in the Old Testament sense of intimate, personal knowledge. And he says, eternal life is knowing God. And a darkened mind filled with ignorance is therefore alienated from the life of God. God is not only the source of life, but God is also the direction, the the path. His word shows us how to live a life in connection with that source. The darkness isn't foisted upon Gentiles, worldly people. It is due to their hardness of heart, who in their callousness have given themselves over to licentiousness, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. We celebrate the darkness. That's the tragedy of our sin. We like it. We hide in it. There's a lot of parallels, a lot of common language here between this and the first chapter of the epistle to Romans. That would be a wonderful read this Lord's Day afternoon. I'll summarize here. Paul explains that this darkened state of mind is the fruit of a fallen condition. He says, we knew God, and to this day it's true, every last man, woman, and child on earth knows God. But what do we do? We suppress this knowledge in our guilt and sin. We prefer, as it were, the fast food of an idol to the joys of And the feasting that comes in God's house. We suppress the knowledge that would allow us to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. In in lieu of idols made in our own image. That give us pleasure. Paul writes, For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him. But they became futile, same word, in their thinking. And their foolish hearts were darkened. Again, claiming to be wise, they became fools. They exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. This idolatry is... The calloused, hardened position that Christ finds us in when he comes to save us. Yes, we are lost sheep. We're wandering. We're wandering, looking for green pastures, but we don't really want God's green pastures. But we are also broken sheep. We've fallen in the ditch. We've broken our limbs. And when our good shepherd comes to swoop us up in pain and fear and agony, we often kick at him. I stumbled upon a story that I think I've never told in the pulpit before, which is funny because I've told them all like far too often. But I had a dog. uh, He was a a stray, sort of a stray. We we got him secondhand. So I don't know how he was raised, but very fearful, very skittish. And um, when I was a child, his name was Theo, Theodore, short for Theodore, Theo. And um, we used to have uh, possums in our backyard and the possums would go along the top of the fence and Theo would go crazy trying to jump and get to the possums. And one time he jumped up and his hind leg 
got caught between the slats of the fence. And so as he fell, he was hanging from his hind leg. And I was 12 years old. I was terrified. And the sound he was making was horrible. And I wanted, you know, it's my dog. And I wanted to go save him. And I, I ran to him and I grabbed him and I grabbed his leg and I lifted with all my strength. It wasn't very strong. And the leg was stuck. And so I just jerked it and nothing happened. And he turned and bit me. Punctured me. I had to get stitches. I had to get shots. And of course, ah! And then I pulled harder and got him out. That's what we're like. We're hanging there by the leg. That's the darkened mind of man. We're in pain. And hurting people, hurting pets hurt people. That's what we do. We're callous. And though in Christ we are Gentiles no longer, Paul's instruction here, I think, tells us that that Gentile way of living yet clings to us. It yet tempts us and beguiles us. It has become a part of our habits that we have to forcibly, manfully, womanfully strive against. Satan is clever. He's good at what he does. But he's not omniscient. And he's a liar. He knows he's powerless against King Jesus, but he prowls around as a lion, hoping and praying that some of us, he doesn't know which one of us are saved. He doesn't know that our hearts are regenerate. He hopes and prays for the weak ones in our, in our midst, that he can turn them to the darkness. That's why he tempts us all. He doesn't want us to know the truth of Christ and the new creation, doesn't want us to remember what we've been taught when we heard the cross of Christ preached to us for the first time. And that brings us to our third and final point, really. The new man, the new man which has been put on us is recreated after the likeness of God. And this is really verses 20 to 24. Whereas, in contrast, you did not learn the Messiah in that way. You didn't learn Christ like that. For surely you have heard about him and were taught in him, since truth is in Jesus. You were taught, so this is the, the, the substance of what you were taught. You were taught that you have shed your old man. In regard to your former manner of life, which is perishing due to its deceitful desires. And that you are undergoing renewal in the spirit of your minds. And that you have donned the new man who was created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and devotion. Those who trust in Christ, who believe on him, no longer have darkened minds and calloused consciences and hardened hearts. We have learned Christ the article is used here. So it's, we have learned the Christ. And when Paul talks about the, the Christ, he's talking about the Messiah, King Jesus, ascended, reigning, glorious in heaven. Again, chapter 5. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light. That's what conversion is. Paul intentionally uses unusual language here. The word for, for learning that he uses, you learned Christ, is not usually used to talk about a person. You don't say, I learned Reese, or I learned Miriam, you know. You don't say, I learned the emperor. Paul is saying that you've come to know Jesus. And he uses this similar language in Galatians 4, 6, when he writes, Now that you have come to know God, or rather come to be known by God, there's this relational reality that has taken place. And it's an Old Testament idea. It's what we read about already in our baptismal form this morning, Jeremiah. Jeremiah promises that one of the blessings of the new covenant will be that no longer will anyone say to his neighbor, know the Lord. You can't learn the Lord. 
What does Jeremiah says? For they will all know me from the least to the greatest. And I will forgive them their sins. There's another parallel to learning Christ, which is Paul's preaching of Christ and him crucified. We preach Christ, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1. Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ. We need to learn Christ. We have learned Christ. And we need to learn and confirm that knowledge. Our Pew Bible, the ESV says, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. But I think Paul gets it more right when he says, for surely... For surely you have heard about him. You were taught him. Since truth is in Jesus. Paul knows. He was there. He lived in Ephesus as long as he lived anywhere. He taught them. He preached to them. Surely you learned Christ. Paul addressed this letter to holy ones, saints, not Gentiles, though they were formerly Gentiles. Saints who are at Ephesus, believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. If you are a Christian and believe in Christ, you know him and the truth is in him. What is this truth? The core Christian truth. Your old man's dead. Your faith has united you to Christ, united to his death, united you to his resurrection. When Jesus died at Calvary, he died for believers and believers died there with him. And the baptism that we witness today testifies to that fact. In Colossians, Paul writes, In him you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh. By the circumcision of Christ, have you been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you, you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses, canceling the record of debt that stood against us, With its legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. That's your cross, dear Christian. That's your burial. That's your tomb. When Satan tempts you, when he darkens your thoughts, you can say to him, you're talking to the wrong guy. He's in the grave. The old Adam is dead and buried. One of the church fathers, St. Chrysostom, uh, preached homilies on this book. And he wrote, Our first man is buried, buried not in earth, but in the water. Not death destroyed, but buried by death's destroyer. At Calvary, Jesus took the caterpillar you, the earthy, creepy, crawly you, and he wrapped you in the cocoon of his tomb. He took your old man with him to death and hell, suffering the torments for you, and he liquefied your leaf-chomping jaws your stubby little legs. And as he emerged and rose and ascended to heaven, you emerged and rose and ascended to heaven. And you're seated there there with him in the heavenly places right now. And he gave you wings. He gave each and every one of you wings and said, Behold, yours is the earth, not the earth, but the sky. Behold, a new creation. So as I'm wont to do, I, I watched a video online of, cocoons and caterpillars and there's one where there's rows and rows of them and they're all coming down it's like time-lapse photography and as the wings come out you've probably seen it they're they're moist and crumpled up in a ball they've been in the cocoon right and they drop out and they gradually dry out and the the the, the butterfly starts twitching and the wings sort of unfold uncoordinated no no 
rational behavior, but it takes on the form of this beautiful flying apparatus, wings, which will allow, in the case of a monarch butterfly, to fly 3,000 years, 3,000 miles. It would take me 3,000 years in a migration from Canada to Mexico. And the metaphor breaks down, of course, as all earthly metaphors do. But I think this is the stage we're in. We've donned the new man, the man who was created after the likeness of God, the man uh, who is the new creation, the new Adam. And as we are undergoing renewal in the spirit of our minds, Paul says that's happening, to fully grow up into the life of this new man. Our wings are fully formed. All the parts are there, but they're a little cramped. They're wadded up in a ball. They're still stretching out. We keep wanting to crawl. We have a taste for leaves. But Christ wants us to fly. He wants us to sip nectar. Do you want to follow the law? Do you want to justify yourself? Or do you want to drink of the cup of the new covenant, the precious blood of Christ shed for the forgiveness of your sins? This is the continuing, ongoing renewal that's taking place between the cocoon cracking open and us flying away to glory. And this new reality, which you've learned in Christ, that you've been buried and raised with him, is the foundation of all Christian ethics. That's why Paul is writing in this way. This is what it means to preach Christ. And this is, in fact, exactly what Paul was preaching earlier in the epistle. You were dead. You've been made alive. You're now created. He's talking about these good works, and he's going to explain now what they are. Now, I want to address a few objections. Well, if you're so smart, Mr. Pastor, or Mr. Seminary Professor, why do all the English translations say something else? Or most of the modern ones, anyway. Grammatically, first of all, it's important to note that these verbs are infinitives. Uh, they can be translated either by a descriptive form, as I read them today, or by a command as an imperative. And many translators say, well, Paul's giving a lot of instructions here. He's just giving more instructions. We should read them as command, as imperative. But the answer, and I would make a few points. First, look at, at verse 425, a little bit further down the page. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth. What's the therefore? What's he pointing back to? He's pointing back to this fact of the new creation. You don't give a therefore based on a therefore. You don't give a command based on a command. So the, the local context points to the fact that Paul has gone back now to the indicative case. Second, if this is a command, it's impossible you can't kill yourself. You can't bring yourself to new life. It's a gift of the gospel. If you were to commit suicide, heaven forbid, you wouldn't be able to bring yourself back to new life. And third, Paul's pattern in the second half of this letter is to continually go back to the gospel, continually go back to the new creation reality. He never leaves the indicative realities behind. The gospel is always present as the only grounded motivation for holiness. Look at chapter 5. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light. Walk as children of light. Because you're a new creature. You're not dark, you're light. Elsewhere, Paul will say, put away falsehood. Verse 25, put away the ways of living in this old life, wrath, malice, uh, lay aside, Hebrews says, weight and sin, put aside filthiness. Yeah, we put the old way of living aside, but we don't put the old man aside. Jesus did that. The spirit does that. We are newborn infants, Peter says, live like a newborn infant. The bottom line the death of the old man and the rebirth of the new is what takes place when we're born again as Christians by the Spirit in regeneration. We aren't commanded to make ourselves Christians. 
We have been made Christians by the gospel, by Christ. We've been born again by the spirit of God. And so we turn to the food, the meal of the new creation, the nectar that is set before us. Ask you to come and sup and be nourished and fed. Let us pray. Christ Jesus, we are not only weak, but we are powerless. We're hanging from the fence. We're in the ditch. Our legs are broken. And that's how you found us when you came to us in your spirit, when you gave us new life. And we thank you for that miracle of the new creation. And we pray that this new creation would continue to take roots, continue to manifest it, that these new creation wings would continue to unfold and that we might yet begin to start flying, to put away our old life and everything associated with it, to put away the lies of the devil. Thank you, merciful God, for this feast. Help us receive it with grateful hearts through your spirit. In Jesus' name.